Hello and welcome to today's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today I conduct a conversation with a conductor who, in the UK at least, needs no introduction. Over a long and distinguished career he has conducted in both opera and concert hall worldwide. Despite a very bad internet connection at the beginning, which does get a lot better, and the occasional hammerings of a persistent workman outside, I had the pleasure of chatting with Sir Mark Elder. Mark, what a real pleasure to speak to you today. I hope you're well. Well, as I, yes, I am. In many ways, I'm, I'm better than I often am because this sense of timelessness that we're all going through at the minute uh, is quite inspirational in a way. Um, and above all, it means that I can be at home with my wife and sometimes my family and see the spring arrive. Mm, that's true. We never get to see things like that. We're always on the road or never really anywhere for very long to see things like that. I wonder whether I could go right back to the start of your musical life. Um, how did music first come into your life or impact you in any way? Um, well, those are two separate questions, really. I think that I was born with a, with a natural musical feel that was quite a surprise for my family. Mm. Um, my father, a, a dental surgeon, and not um, interested in cultural things so much. My mother adored music and was surprised. Uh, that it seemed to, to mean a lot to me. I had many brothers and sisters, so there was a lot of noise. Mm. But I used to um, I used to sing spontaneously by myself in my I used to invent songs, I think, when I was very young. <laughs> and and I started piano when I was five and then became a chorister. And I think really the impact of working as a very, very young professional, which is really what a chorister is in the church tradition is an incredible preparation for the rest of one's life although of course at the time one had no idea but mm. to sing all that music and to learn how to read music effortlessly uh, and to learn about ensemble singing to learn about how to use your voice and to discover the variety of music and of course if you sing the great choral tradition you're starting with the 16th century some of our greatest music was there, and you're going right the way through until the 20th century. In fact, I think just before I left Canterbury Cathedral, we sang what must have been the second performance of the Missa Brevis that Benjamin Britten wrote for George Malcolm in London. Um, I've worked it out that when we did it, it must have been just a couple of weeks or three weeks after the world premiere. Mm. Um, so that was interesting to be in touch with the very new. Well, I know, having spoken on previous podcasts to both Ed Gardner and Simon Halsey, how much they uh, were grateful and thankful for that choral tradition of coming through as a chorister. The training that you get, you know, not just in the singing training, but also the academic and also and the whole uh, genre. Is that something you still sort of um, mine today, your memories of those days? I'm not sure that by now I mine them, but I'm but I I'm very mindful of them. Mm, yeah, as you say, it's much more than just a musical thing. It is um, a disciplinary thing as well. Yes. it's to do with concentration. In order to get it right at the age of nine, whatever it is, you have to really learn how to concentrate, and that's sometimes a hard lesson. Mm. The climax of that period, I remember those years, was to sing in the St Matthew Passion which was a dream of every chorister that it would happen. It didn't happen 
regularly and some people went through the choir school without getting it and for some reason I got it mm. uh, and it was unforgettable wonderful experience but I think it, it's it's not just those years I think the years that followed were important for me now as a conductor when I joined the National Youth Orchestra mm. and, and played in that only for a couple of years but that meant six separate courses uh, containing two very tiring tours and I met many people with whom I'm still close and many people who've been my colleagues in orchestras ever mm. since and it was a disciplinary thing there as well uh, the discipline that you needed to cope with the schedule and the demands uh, that I I do often think about you were a bassoonist yes um who was conducting yes. the who was conducting the National Youth Orchestra uh, when you were in it? Well, I did more concerts with Rudy Schwartz than with anyone else. Mm. An extraordinary Jewish Viennese musician, um, who's as you may know, Mike uh, was a prisoner of war in the Second World War uh, in a Jewish concentration camp, and uh, the Nazis managed to break his shoulders, mm. and so they knew he was a conductor. And so he had no flexibility there. Consequently, his conducting technique was very idiosyncratic. Mm. Um, and I remember so clearly not realizing when he started to conduct in my first course. I was very young. Um, I remember we were in a big secondary modern school in Sunderland, miles from home. And he said good morning with that incredible smile and that amazing accent of his. And then he started conducting, and I wasn't ready. I didn't realize <laughs> that what he was doing arms was actually a downbeat but he was a marvelous musician we did many things with him um i also played for a norwegian conductor called oivin fjellstadt mm. who came over i played for hugo rignold and and of course christopher seaman was around at the time and he didn't do a course but when we did the european tour for ruth railton's last year um, running the national youth orchestra we went to so many different countries. Chris Seaman did an arrangement for us of the national anthem of each country. <laughs> and so he came and taught us how to do those. And if, if only I could see him, I mean, I would say that we're very good friends, but of course, conductors so rarely see each other. That's true. I mean, that's one of the lucky things about me starting this podcast and so many of you so kindly coming on is that I get to chat to you. I, God knows how many years it's been since I've chatted to you. But I chatted to Chris Seaman recently and he was in fine form regaling me with stories and anecdotes. And uh, I can imagine knowing Chris then was, was a joy. Well, he was educated in the same, almost the same pattern as I was, but he was just that bit older than me. So it was years before we met. You know, he, he was a chorister at Canterbury as I was. Uh, but yeah, no, we've always got on so well when we see each other. And at what stage do you think that conducting first sort of entered into your mind as uh, something you might like to try or even do? I think it was just before I left my secondary school and went to Cambridge. Um, I, did, I did a couple of little things at school hmm. and somehow intuitively the idea of conducting had an appeal for me uh, for a variety of reasons. And of course, I had no idea how one would go about it. But then when I got, got to university, the opportunity for me to start conducting was enormous. Mm. And I spent a lot of time at Cambridge organising my own concerts and operas rather than studying the course as I was supposed to do. <laughs> 
Um, and I read that um, pretty early on, I don't know whether it was whether you, while you were at university, but uh, Sir Edward Downs played a big part in your life. Um, would that be true? Oh, yes. That was immediately after. Mm. Um, I did three years at Cambridge and they very generously gave me a degree so that I wouldn't put the college <laughs> to shame and tentatively tiptoed into the profession um, doing a lot of piano playing, accompanying. Mm. I did song recitals and BBC recordings. And um, I had a job at Glyndebourne and they asked me to be the chorus master, I think, one year. And then I had an invitation to come and audition at the Royal Opera. And it was difficult because Glyndebourne were putting pressure on me to stay and be one of their stable. And in the end, I said, but I think the range of the repertoire, the fact that it's a full-time job rather than just a summer festival, um, really appealed to me. Mm. At that stage, you see, by that time, after my three years at Cambridge, I was head over heels in love with opera. I thought it was the most astonishingly exciting form, however disappointing individual performances would, might be. Um, it seemed to me that at its best, it was the most exciting thing that I could possibly be involved with. And it brought together, you see, Mike, the, the things that I'd done, orchestral playing, keyboard playing, involving harpsichord and organ as well as piano, and singing. I sang, um, not just as a boy, but as a young man, very inadequately, but I got a lot of fun from it. And also on top of that, I did a lot of acting all through my childhood and adolescence. And so the idea of being involved in some musical drama was really thrilling to me. Mm. And being on the staff at Covent Garden when Ted offered me a job was, uh, you know, it was amazing. I just couldn't believe my luck, really. And after we'd worked together a bit, I did some office with him. I prompted them. Prompting in those days at Covent Garden was the peach job, either mm -hmm. playing the piano for the production rehearsals or prompting the performance. Every opera at that stage was prompted. And as I went through my time at Covent Garden, various contemporary producers tried to do away with the prompt box. And of course, nowadays, it's an almost um, you know, it's a, uh, an endangered species. <laughs> but I could write a book about my experiences. Hysterical things happen. Well, you should and do. <laughs> that, that's how I got to know Ted. By that time, and we're talking about 1971, Ted Downs had become the musical director of arguably the opera company furthest away from London, that is to say in Australia. Mm. And he was trying to bolster the music staff. And he wanted to find some young musicians who would be prepared to come and live in Australia for at least two years to get experience and help the company develop. And I went with him. And when I left and came back, my dear friend Peter Robinson came out to take my job. So there was a sense of continuity there. Uh, and it was a marvellous experience. I conducted so many performances. And that was Sydney, yes? Well, yes, of course, for the opening of the Opera House, the first season of the Opera House. But as well, uh, Melbourne, Adelaide, Canberra, Brisbane. At this point, um, you've not really talked about anybody teaching you conducting. Did that ever really happen? Or were you just picking it up as you went along, watching Ted Downs? Um, uh, being involved in the whole thing and just making your own way? The answer to that is that, that I had a brief skirmish with having lessons with a, um, a strange man, a, a British conductor, 
who'd studied with Celebidaki. I also met an Italian conductor who'd also studied with Celebidaki. And I became fascinated by the incredible power of Celebidaki's technical attitude to what he did. Mm. And there being very few alternatives, I tried to go along with it. And I know I'm not the only one. <laughs> and at that stage, he never came to England. I remember making a pilgrimage to Paris because that was the nearest he ever come to England. Mm. And um, I don't know, it didn't really do it for me. Um, and then uh, this whole offer from Ted Downs to go and live in Australia took over. Mm. So I would say that I really worked out conducting for myself, having watched many, many people. Mm. Um, and Ted, of course, was one of those because I assisted him in Australia as well as gun, but there were many, many other people. I mean, for instance, when I was an undergraduate, I played a lot for two um, high-quality musicians, Andrew Davis and David Atherton. And they, of course, are opposites in terms of their personality and temperament. Mm. And I soon realized, Mike, you see, that you could learn so much from watching other people, even if it was only what you thought you shouldn't do. <laughs> and um, we all have to find our own way. Mm. And it's only when we stand up in front of an orchestra ourselves that we begin to find whether or not we can be in contact with ourselves. Can we have confidence in our musical ability? Can we have enough self-discipline and self-control in order to control the musicians in front of us? And I realised very quickly that that was the, the nub of it. In, until I could control myself, I'd never be able to control an orchestra. And this is a long journey, isn't it? Mm. And some people do it one way and other people do it in another. But the experience that I needed at that stage was as much to do with myself and music as conducting. And those years, 72, 73, the beginning of 74, were of incredible value to me, that they were putting down the foundations for the rest of my life. It's wonderful that you say that you can learn so much by observing others. You know, I look back on my life and between, you know, 1991 and 2005, that's 14 years of playing in the CBSO, I watched probably hundreds of people come and conduct the orchestra and they must have all rubbed off of me, as you say, sometimes the things that you shouldn't do and sometimes the things that you should do. And, you know, I was always somebody who watched conductors intently. I wanted to know what they were doing and why they were doing it and why it was impacting on how I played. Um, and you're right, everybody does it differently. And you're also right in the fact that you've got to sort yourself out, um, you out, yourself, before you, you think you can control others. I completely agree with that. We're so naked on the podium, aren't we? Mm. That if we do something manufactured or has been prepared in some way inside us, if we do something that we think we ought to do or will make a good impression, uh, an orchestra will feel immediately. And eventually, of course, they will see through it. Mm. But they won't feel you're being honest. And I think integrity, courage, and honesty are absolutely fundamental qualities for a young conductor. Throughout this time, opera was obviously a big part of your life. And the next big thing i would say for you was english national opera starting in 1979 how did that come about were you working there through the 70s until you started as music director 
I came back from Australia in 74 to take up a position with, with uh, English National Opera. And, and that was the year in which that, that became the title of the company. Before mm. that, it was the South as Wells Opera at the London Coliseum. And um, Lord Harwood, I think it was, um, achieved this new title for the company. And I, I think my position at that stage was staff conductor, which was wonderful for me because it gave me a steady job. It gave me the chance to settle into it and learn from my mistakes and develop and grow and um, in, in repertoire that I, I loved. And this, the really important person for me at that stage musically, of course, was Charles Vickeris. I'd worked with him in the Sydney Opera House for the opening season. He came out to do a new production of The Magic Flute, which I then conducted when he left. And we got on terribly well. Um, I really, really, I loved him at the end. He was the most wonderful friend. And I think he saw that I could be a good member of the team to balance with some of the other musicians who'd already been there. And 74, 5, 6, 7, 8, I did a lot of repertoire of different things that I really needed to do. And I watched the company and saw how they developed, how the, a big company like that struggles to maintain its profile and its uh, importance in such a big London theatre and how to conduct different musical styles. That above all was the thing that interested me. Then in 79, there was a bit of a crisis. Um, the outgoing music director, uh, Charles Groves, who was also a wonderful friend of mine, um, he, he, he felt he couldn't cope anymore. He resigned. It was the week that Margaret Thatcher came to power. <laughs> it was right at the end of a season in May. And uh, it was an amazing moment, you know, in the political fraternity that we should have a, a female prime minister and a woman of such, uh, you know, strong personality. Mm. And that very same week, George said to me, you know, he called me in and he said, I want you to be the next music director of the company when Sir Charles Groves retires. Uh, and I said, when will that be? Um, goodness me, what, a, you know, what an incredible invitation. Mm. And he said, oh, it'll be in, in a few years, two or three years. And I said, well, my instinct is, George, that I should leave the company and spread my wings and go and do other things and come back fresh mm. uh, and, and a, as a new personality for the company. That was not to be, because by the end, by Christmas of that year, Charles had been very unhappy and not, he didn't feel confident and he was... His, his strength was, was going a bit, and he felt out of sorts with the size of the job. And he resigned, but rather suddenly. He hadn't been well. And overnight, George said to me, uh, you're on. <laughs> and I said, can I have a few weeks to think about it? <laughs> I'll never forget it. George said, no, you can't. <laughs> wow. Um, so I had to start. And I started on January the 2nd, uh, 1980. And um, I had my own operas to conduct, but I also had to take over operas that, that Charles was going to do. And most particularly was a new production of Beethoven's Fidelia, mm. which was not a piece that I had, had ever studied or known. So that was rather exciting. And so I was like thrown into the deep end. And, you know, I had some, some incredible experiences, some good, some tricky. Uh, and through that, that experience of being in that job for 12 years, whatever it was, I, uh, well, I learned a great deal and I grew up. 
two organizations really dominate your career but I'm, I'm i'll come back to the second one the halle in a, in a in a moment or two but you did 13 14 years at english national opera and you've done 20 years in counting with the halle but in between you formed relationships by guest conducting in between opera um productions um principal guest at cbso where i first played for you principal guest at bbc symphony orchestra and london mozart players what was that like going from an opera production of many weeks and then suddenly doing a week's work with uh, another orchestra. Did you enjoy it? Um, did you enjoy the, you know, the making the new relationships with orchestras? How was that? Well, when I started all those years earlier in Australia, um, I was so used to working in the theatre because I'd worked at Kleinborn and at Covent Garden for two years. And that was my life. That was the routine of my life. Mm. Uh, and it it held no horrors for me. It was it was hard work, but I knew where I was in the theatre. I knew about singers, or I was learning about singers and how difficult it is, and you know how much help they need. When I did a concert, I remember thinking, "When are the singers coming?" <laughs> and they never turned up. Mm. Um, and I felt uh, I felt vulnerable, you know, just being stuck up on a podium and without the singers to sort of um, relate to. You know, mm. because I got on very well with them and, and had a good relationship. Of course, now I love it when the singers don't come, you know, when I can just do something um, instrumental. Mm. Um, and I've enjoyed that for many, many, many years. And I think really working in the theatre teaches you so much about music. Above all, it teaches you how music has to breathe. Mm. Singers can't sing the second phrase if they don't breathe after they've finished the first phrase. <laughs> yeah. And it's not snatching a breath is it it's a question of taking a good breath to get them through the next phrase and you learn about how music needs time and how it's phrased and the breath in music is a fundamental uh, quality in great music making whether or not there are any singers and your clarinets and your flutes you know oboes have to breathe after all mm. and uh, i was always trying to find the right balance between symphonic repertoire and the operatic repertoire. And gradually, after I'd been back in London a few years, the balance started to change. Immediately in the 70s, when I came back, I worked with the, the BBC Norman Symphony Orchestra in Manchester, as it was then called. Mm. That was a, a tough experience because they were tough. <laughs> um, and I was, you know, they could see immediately that I was green and young. Um, and I learned to hold my own with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, and I went to Cardiff, I remember. and. I enjoyed the repertoire, that's the first thing to say. I loved all the different repertoire that I was doing and trying to find the sound world for each composer. And that has remained something of primary importance for me. What is it about the music of a particular composer that as a conductor, you have to get the orchestra to feel and understand? Mm. And, you know, some musical styles, an orchestra will will do brilliantly, immediately. You don't have to worry about it. And others, they take a bit of time. Uh, and a good example is, is an English orchestra might instinctively understand the world of Elgar, even if it's a piece that they haven't played very often. But if you present them with some of those tricky works by Janáček, it wouldn't sound like Janáček for the first couple of days. You know, it would take time to get into it. Yeah. And that fascinated me, and it still does. And so I, I loved the contrast. And I loved developing my technique uh, as a rehearser. Mm. I think that's another thing to say. You know, our, our craft, Mike, is, is a mixture of, of knowing how to work with an orchestra, how to be with an orchestra, how to organize the time well, not to waste it and to bring the whole concert to, 
uh, performance pitch at the right moment. And the art is something different. And the art I, I couldn't quite talk about for years. I knew it, something had to happen that I, didn't, that I didn't have the maturity to grasp, but I wanted it to be there. Mm. And bit by bit, I think it started to appear. <laughs> and within those orchestras, um, forming relationships that, you know, I've talked in the, in the past, you know, it's very easy to get on the hamster wheel of guest conducting and just do one week after week with a different orchestra. But I'm imagining being principal guest, for instance, in Birmingham, meant that you could form relationships with the orchestra much better than, than just going round and round the world, meeting new people all the time. Was that a joy? I'm guessing it would be because you've been, you know, you're, as I said earlier, your music, you've been music director with two organisations for basically 30 odd years, you know, in total. So you like forming relationships. Yes, I always had done. Yeah. And when I was young and not conducting so much, you know, like at Glyndebourne or at Covent Garden, I was very interested to see how a company worked, to watch the orchestra at work mm. uh, with different conductors, to sense their mood, to start talking to some of them and, and asking questions. Yes. Um, not every conductor, of course, is interested in this. I, I've always been interested in how something functions. I'm interested in what makes music tick. Mm. Not all conductors are so into talking about music or they feel a bit inhibited or vulnerable or don't want to expose themselves. I don't know. We're all so different. Um, but I've, I've always been interested in how different players respond to music, mm. what different players like and dislike. And is it from, from the point of view of, of being a player or is it from the point of view of being a musician? Yes. Two very different things. Just because you're an oboe player, that doesn't mean to like doesn't mean to say you like playing great oboe parts by Richard Strauss. You might long for a Haydn symphony, mm. and it was a way for me to develop my skill con conducting orchestras by understanding them from the inside. But that's not to say, of course, that I was at all interested to become what I would call pally. Yes, in yeah, the yeah, sense yeah. of being too familiar. Mm. I, having watched so many conductors at work when I was very young. It became clear to me that it didn't help if one had too easygoing a relationship. That part of the challenge of developing one's skill as a conductor was developing your ability to be happily solitary mm. and to stand on the podium and let all the brickbats come at you um, <laughs> and let them bounce off and let people say what they wanted to say, but then let them play it the way you wanted them to play it. Mm. And um, I needed to cultivate that. Uh, I think in, in, in my temperament, I'm gregarious and that has an advantage, but it also wouldn't help me if I allowed it to go over the top and become too intimately friendly. Mm. Pally's a good word, I think you're right. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, what I also remember, you know, very much about those days when you came to Birmingham was you could, you could have a laugh with us and also you could laugh at yourself, be self-deprecating and, you know, not too often, but now and again. And I think that when you show your human side, it, it sort of endears people to you. And, you know, we just realise we're just human beings doing our thing and we, the common goal is making music. But, I, yeah, I remember, remember those rehearsals well and, and certain incidents um, very well. Yeah, my relationship with you all in Birmingham was very important to me yeah. because Sam Rattle and I had become very close friends. At that period, when he started with you all in Birmingham, he lived about 200 yards from me in, in London. Ah. And 
we got to know each other. And it was just, he was starting in Birmingham as I started at the Coliseum. So we had a lot to share because uh. we were both on these big responsibilities and trying to build something better than it was before. Mm. And uh, so we were, were, we were brothers, you know? <laughs> and uh, we became really close friends, actually. And there was a period when he lived in our house, when his house was being repainted. And then years later, we lived in his when, when we bought a new house before it was ready for us to move into. Mm. And um, yeah, we've known each other a very, very long time. And we had a lot to share. And, you know, interestingly, conductors, as you said, Mike, they very rarely see each other and they're very rarely time mm. to form friends. And I'm very happy and, and um, proud that I have a number of conductors who I count as my friends. Mm. Who I've got to know gradually over the years and you know some you you have a good cord, cordial relationship with but not friendship um Edward Gardner you know is, is a great friend of mine yes and and there are others and Simon was one of the first and he of course was by that time although he's much younger than me um he conducted a lot of music that I didn't know and vice versa mm. and I conducted a lot of um, operatic music that he was interested in um, and didn't know anything about and you know we shared experiences and that was very well it was lovely it was very reassuring and and uh, it was good for our generosity together there's a there's a lovely story which i, I hope you tell everybody about uh the time we worked together in the cbso and i think we were re doing some recordings of shostakovich in the town hall a couple of weeks after simon was knighted um which oh, is oh a, God. yeah which is a lovely story if you wouldn't mind telling it Nobody can believe that it really happened, but I promise you it did. Yeah, it was less than two weeks after he got his knighthood. And the symphony hall wasn't open, I don't think. And we were, we were recording a very little-known Shostakovich ballet. I think we were doing, uh, actually it was a musical, a vaudeville, called Hypothetically Murder. Mm. And there was a wonderful guy who was the second trombone in CBS at the time, Danny Longstaff, outside the town hall in the break. And a friend of his turned up. He said, oh, Danny, what are you doing here? You're, doing some, you're playing here? He said, yeah, yeah, we're recording, actually. Yeah, it's great, great music. It's lovely, enjoying it. And he said, oh, really? Is that with Sir Simon? <laughs> Quick as a flash, Danny said, no, with my mark. <laughs> And talking of long relationships, how did it start at the Halle? Um, you started in 2000, I think that's correct, and, and, and you're now into your 20th year. How did your time at the Halle first start and come around? Well, my, the, my, my time at the Halle started a lot earlier than that, mm. 20 years before that. At the beginning of the 80s was the first time I ever went to Manchester to conduct the Halle. As I said, I'd been often to conduct the BBC Orchestra mm. um, and, and formed a good relationship with them. And, um, and I was excited to go to the Halle because, of course, it was a very famous orchestra and Barbara Ollie's legacy and his reputation was still in, enormous, you know. And it was, it was very difficult in those days, the beginning of the 80s, mm. uh, because the orchestra wasn't very happy. But, of course, I, I, I couldn't talk about that. I was too young myself and I just found it very difficult rehearsing them. Mm. I found it very difficult making music with them 
because I sensed that they weren't interested to make music with me. And there were some wonderful exceptions of people who seemed dedicated to their work. Um, but by and large, I mean, the, you know, Richard the First Ever, of course, was always absolutely sensational. Um, but by and large, the orchestra didn't seem to have a very good mood. Mm. And I tried for, for some years. I went to three or four times, I think. And I remember just after my daughter was born in 1986, I gave, unbelievably, I gave the Manchester premiere of one of the greatest 20th century choral works, the Glagolitic Mass by Janicek. Nobody else had got around to doing it. Really? I, 1986, oh, that's extraordinary. Yeah. How about that? <laughs> and, and the orchestra, you know, if you don't play the few works of Janicek's that he wrote for the concert hall, you, you're lost in the style. Mm. You know, you think, what is this? How, how am I supposed to make sense of this? And frankly, I thought the orchestra at that time had no ability to know how to learn it or get on top of it. They, they just it seemed like the worst modern music to them. Mm. That's an incredible thing to say now, I know. Mm. Mm. It's what I, what I experienced in 1986. And so I stopped. And I, I thought, no, I, I'm not going to come back here because it's, I'm not enjoying myself. And I don't, you know, I don't think they're enjoying it either. And a few years went by, I think until 92. And then I went back in 92. And I was there for two weeks. And it was extraordinary experience for me because the orchestra was basically the same people. But the atmosphere seemed to be totally different. <laughs> and I enjoyed it so much. And I felt I could be myself and we could make music as I wanted it to be and they'd come with me. Mm. And it was lovely because we did Elgar 1 and Marla 3. Little did I know <laughs> in 92. And there were lots of rumours at that time that I was going to take over the orchestra. Uh, none of which I knew, I mean, you know, nobody had said anything to me. But people <laughs> came up to me at the Coliseum and said, have you bought a house in Manchester then? Oh, it's great, Mark. we're very, very pleased for you. You know, all that, it's all rumour. And while I was there, they announced Kent Nagano. And, uh, you know, great. And mm. so off we went and I didn't go near the orchestra. Kent never asked me to come back. And it was uh, right at the end of the 90s that things started to move again. And, um, yeah, uh, actually, at that time, the lady who runs the London Symphony Orchestra, Catherine McDowell, was working at the Arts Council. And she approached me very, very quietly and very secretly one night and said, there's a job to do in Manchester. They need a new leader. They need change. They need helping. Um, you know, I think you're the person to do it. Mm. Well, I didn't really know her and I didn't know what had been happening in Manchester because I hadn't been there. Mm. And then one or two other people started to talk to me and it gradually started to, to build towards something. And I said, well, Let's give it a go. Let's get some time in the diary when I can go up and meet everybody and let them see whether they think it's a good idea. Mm. Um, so, Mike, I did, and I don't know whether you know this, but the first concert that I did under those circumstances was the Manchester premiere of Elgar's Third Symphony. The, the composer, Anthony Payne, had realised a life dream by being allowed by the estate, eventually, after many, many years of hoping and praying, to try and finish and make something of the sketches. And it had caused a, a great stir when Andrew Davis did the world premiere, uh, as it should have done. I mean, it was an amazing a moment. Mm. But of course, for me, what was interesting about it at that moment was to see how I could 
build some sort of creative relationship with this group of players, some of whom I remembered from before, and of course, many I didn't know. Yeah. And um, it was interesting, really, really fascinating, because we were all doing a piece that we'd never heard. Yeah. So we were, you know, the, the sheet was absolutely clear, clean. You know, we had no, no, no preconceptions, no prejudices. And indeed, because it was by Elgar, we were thinking, oh, this will be interesting. Yeah, it was a great way to start, actually. It was a marvellous idea. And I also did the prelude to Parsifal with them, that concert, uh, and tried to show them my feeling for this music, which just goes very deep in me. I've done a lot of Wagner, and he's a very, very great composer for an orchestra to rehearse and play. Mm. And uh, so we started as, in a way, as I wanted to go on, Wagner and Elgar. Yeah. As you say, the perfect piece, because... Uh, nobody can pin anything on anybody. You know, you're all in it together. You're all mucking in together with something that nobody knows and a big piece. Um, and even the one time I remember playing it, I, th I remember playing it thinking, I can't even really apply what I would normally think about playing Elgar to this because even that doesn't seem to work. Um, so, yeah, it's a yeah. wonderful way of sort of getting to know each other. Yeah. An arranged marriage, you could call it. Yeah. <laughs> but we're still together. Yes, you are, and very successfully, and, and how it must have changed over 20 years. Yes, I mean, there's, first of all, of course, from the personnel. We're, we're rewriting both Elgar symphonies now. Mm. We've done the second one already, and we're going to do the first one. We should have done it already, but the, the virus has stopped that. So we'll do it as soon as we can all get back to being big orchestras. You know, it may be 18 months' time, I don't know, but we're going to do the first one again. And it's important to do it, because the performance, I'm sure, will be different from the one we did all those years ago. And so many of the orchestra have changed. Mm. There isn't a single principal player in the orchestra who was there when we did it before. Wow. And it's one of the great Halle stories, actually, now, of my time with them, that we recorded that first symphony in the aftermath of 9-11. Oh. We were actually recording the first movement of the first symphony when the towers came down. Wow, wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, not, not going to forget that in a hurry. No, and for a play that slow movement, you know, the oh. next day, mm -hmm. you know, we had to be really, really, I had to be really strong with them and, you know, keep them fixed in the concentration and not collapse because everybody was, by that time, was shell-shocked, you know? Mm. I know through various messages between each other about doing this interview that there's a, you have a coincidence in your career that you seem to have conducted either the first subscription concert or the first time in, for, for instance, you were one of the first people to conduct in the Sydney Opera House, one of the first people to conduct, uh, well, you were the very first subscription concert in Symphony Hall, Birmingham, your own rehearsal space in Manchester with the Hallids, St Peter's, uh, and even the Royal concert hall in Nottingham one of the first people to conduct in there what is it like when you go in to a hall that you just don't know the acoustic of uh, how do you what challenges does that um, present to you the first thing about it is it's very exciting mm. it's very thrilling to see how sounds will come across yeah. in a building that nobody knows uh, the first time I would say that this this happened for me was not the Sydney Opera House, it was the months before when we opened another opera house in Australia, in Adelaide. Ah. 
which funnily enough with my tongue firmly in my cheek sits in a park called elder park music <laughs> in adelaide is the elder conservatorium yeah. which is very very funny it's one of the founding families of adelaide was an elder nothing mm. to do with me but there we were in elder park and of course i got teased a great deal about it you know you come here from bloody pommy bastard you come here from england do you even insist they change the name of the, the park <laughs> um, and so we we just spent a week opening the opera house in adelaide and it had been a very positive experience um it was very well designed it was very professional it wasn't so beautiful but uh, and the pit was very deep so it was quite loud but it was a positive experience mm. and then we all came back to sydney and were appalled by what we found in the opera house the opera house um, as you probably know, was a is a um, a very mixed blessing. It's a very curate's egg, mm. uh, and it has marvelous things about it. But the conditions for musicians to work in the in the opera part of it were never good, because of the way it was constructed and the way the history of the building evolved. Mm. But it meant that in quick succession, I was there at the opening of two different buildings, and the difference in sound was absolutely massive. Mm. And what it does, Mike, I mean, one aspect is it trains your ear. Mm. It gets you listening. You know, it means you've got to really focus on what you're hearing and whether what you hear when you conduct on the podium is different from what you hear when you're sitting out in the auditorium. Mm. And what are you hearing and how could it be better? And those two experiences were like very formative for me. And when I came back to Europe in 1974, it didn't stop. You know, I, I found myself constantly fronting up to new conceptions in sound. Mm. And it's sort of gone on. I mean, the, to be there with you all in Birmingham, the opening of, the, of Symphony Hall of that period was incredibly exciting because the hall had such a, an amazing acoustic that was so different from your amazing town hall. And to go to Nottingham with you the next week and, and get used to something really good i mean i think the nottingham, nottingham concert hall is one of the finest in the country mm. it may not look it as an, ar an architectural vision but by george it's a great hall to do concerts in mm. and i've done so many over the years there and the audience are just wonderful but there were other places too where i was uh, very early in before anybody could uh, know what was going on you know and um i find it very stimulating and it's being part of the new being part of a new drive. Mm. What's also interesting when you're talking about Symphony Hall and uh, in Birmingham is, as you say, it's what you hear on the podium might not necessarily be what you hear in the hall. And through my times assisting people uh, going out and listening and being asked to go out and listen, I realised that actually what you hear on the stage is nothing like what you hear in the hall. And it's taken me 10 years probably to be able to accept certain things that you hear on the platform you aren't going to hear out there and vice versa uh, and it's quite an art um i go out and listen in rehearsals when i go to a new hall i don't know whether you do that or when you've had assistance at the halley that's easier for them to do that job for you i'm assuming oh yeah that's one of the the most important things about who the assistant is yes because i learn to to, to help him to guide him uh, to trust him so that I know what his ears are like when he says something to me. Mm. And each assistant that we've had is different. And um, I would always ask the assistant what they hear. 
I always, in my work with my young assistants, say, I'm interested to know what you hear. Mm. I don't want to go and listen myself. Scholte used to do that at Covent Garden. And that's how Ted Downs got his experience over, you know, over many, many years, assisting Scholte when he was much younger. Mm. And he would conduct a run-through of an act of an opera while Scholte went out and took notes. But Ted is a very different conductor from Scholte. Mm. Don't know how relevant it was. Um, but it was the Scholte's way. Okay. Uh, and um, you learn to anticipate, which I've done now in the Bridgewater, what is coming over and what isn't. Mm. Now, I learned that the hard way by working in the London Coliseum for so many years. And the Coliseum was never intended to be a lyric opera house. The pit is very long. It's like mm. Tripolata shape. Mm. Um, I always said we need to have regular parties to introduce the horns to the trombones because they're <laughs> different ends of the of the of the pit mm. and um, never spoke to each other. And th th I you got to learn um, what's coming over. For instance, if I could hear the timpani loud and clear, I knew they would be intolerably loud in the auditorium. Mm. If the timpani was too soft to me, I thought it might just be all right for the audience. It's a very very difficult pit to master. And the strings all laying in, out in long lines, you know, in the back of the sections, so divorced from the front and all that sort of thing. It's a tricky, tricky pit. Mm. So I was used to the idea that what was coming over was not what I was hearing. And I was, I thought to myself in Manchester, oh, I see, it's more of this, is it? But now I know. Mm. And, uh, and I'm ready for it. And I can sort of guess. I, now I say, you can't hear the second violins there, can you? <laughs> you know, answer came there. No, I can't. <laughs> yeah, I've had exactly the same at Symphony Hall in Birmingham. Uh, you're going to say the horns are too loud, aren't you? And I would always go, yes, I am, yeah, because they get such help off the back wall and the, the shape of the back wall. It's just, it's it's a real art that um, we haven't really discussed in these podcasts at all about dealing with acoustics. And, and, and uh, yeah, fascinating, fascinating discussion. I know through speaking to Alpesh Chohan, for instance, who was at the Royal Northern College, but also through speaking to Ed Gardner, uh, that you are very much involved with teaching, um, especially the Halle assistant job um, and how you, you really do mentor them. Um, do you enjoy teaching and do you have a sort of ethos or, or way or method or do you just approach each person as they, as they come? There are so few opportunities in our great musical country to train young conductors in the profession. If you were a young conductor in, in Austria or Germany, you could get a job in an opera house of a different, different standard, you know, and you could learn your craft. You could learn and watch other people and get thrown in and do your apprenticeship. We have almost no opportunities to offer. And I thought it was very important that um, the Halle found a way to, to guard the opportunity to have a young conductor. It's great to have a younger musician who may not have the experience or the knowledge that somebody twice their age has, but that doesn't matter. What's interesting to me is to get to know them orally. And mm. I always say to them, I want to know what you hear when they come and sit in my rehearsals. And I turn around and catch them napping or reading another score and say, could you hear the violas then? It's quite funny. 
mm. which to get a lot of amusement because they can see you know whether the guy's really paying attention mm. or the lady but it's a great chance to build a relationship and in certain cases a friendship um i've stayed in contact with many many of my assistants and they phone me or write to me and ask me questions about what they're going through and i don't think conducting teaching should be too prescriptive i know there are two schools of thought about this mm, yeah, but yeah. at the end we have to find our own way and by the time somebody has had enough experience to become the assistant of the hallow they've got to have their own style um, and they need to be on their own journey of self-examination and self-criticism i think it was bruno walter wasn't it who said when he was a young conductor he he assumed that he was in the wrong all through all the rehearsals he <laughs> criticized himself and assumed he could do something different and better to make the music better but then in the performance he assumed he was absolutely on top of it and enjoyed it and just didn't worry mm. and i think that's good advice yeah it is. it's a very lonely life being a conductor you have to stand alone mm. you have to be happy to be solitary and that doesn't mean to say it's the same thing as being lonely but you have to stand on your own feet and young conductors of course don't have much experience of that and they need support and help and often when they you know i would come to their rehearsals and they would say things like oh god that was absolutely terrible wasn't it i mean i i just i just knew i set the wrong tempo and i was lumbered with it you know and i say no it wasn't terrible actually there were many things that i was enjoying enormously i could see that you thought it was bad which was a pity i didn't want to, to see that you thought it was bad that sort of thing you know we talk and share things and um it's very worthwhile I think it's a wonderful thing. I think that more orchestras since have sort of tried to copy, or at least use it as a template, what you've done at the Halle with the assistant thing. I know in Birmingham, for instance, I can only talk of my personal experience. You know, I was the first assistant conductor, but that was because I was in the orchestra, uh, and that's a different ball game. But when the next person to come along, Alpesh, and then following on Jonathan Bloxham and now Jame, you know, the, the role that is to try and you know everybody puts their arm around them all of the players all of the staff and anybody who's in conducting when they when they can come to rehearsals and i think using the halle template has, has proved uh, a good idea and i think as you said more opportunities we can give to young conductors to to be a sponge and absorb you know advice and chats with the likes of yourself but also from players and managers it's it just it's just so helpful I've seen you conduct an awful lot. Obviously, I played for you when I was in the orchestra, but then I've seen you on the proms and whatever else. You seem to switch between using a baton and not using a baton. I know some conductors do that actually within a piece to get a different sound. Is there a reason for it? Or do you choose pieces where you do and don't use a baton, or did you just decide to stop using it for a while? I think over, over many years, I have somehow felt freer without a stick. Hmm. Part of this reason is because I'm fundamentally left-handed. Ah, right, okay. Uh, and I was discouraged from being a left-handed conductor when I was a schoolboy. Hmm. And there, thereafter, got into the habit of conducting right-handed because A, I thought it was what was expected, and B, because I then got so far I didn't want to change. Hmm. And I find without a stick, my two arms are 50-50. Yes. And being left-handed, my, my left hand is very strong in terms of expressing, which is not the case um, with right-handed conductors. Their left hands are their weak hands. 
Mm. So I've, I've always enjoyed being able to show a lot with the left hand. But also, Mike, there are some styles of music that suggest not having a stick, suggest mm. a more flowing, flexible, sculpting beat. Mm. German music particularly. Wagner I've done a lot without a stick. Mm. But Italian music is much easier with a stick. I don't know, it's changed a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I just feel freer without it. When you come to learn a score, are you one of these types who writes a lot in, like myself, or do you keep your scores clean? And do you have a set process when you come to learn a new, a new piece, whether it be a brand new piece or whether it be a piece new to you? I'm very, as the years go by, I'm cherry about writing stuff in. Mm. I leave it as late as I can. It depends what the music is. I mean, I would uh, cue in a score. Mm. And I need that to, for the just fluency of reading it. Mm. And it depends on the style of the music so much, what the period of the music is. There are two forms of studying, Mike. Mm. There's the there's the, the sweeping architectural thing that doesn't worry about all the details. Yes. But tries to get a sense of the flow and where the music is headed and where the main points of interest are and climaxes. And so you get the architecture of the piece. And then there's another form of studying, which for me is incredibly painstaking, like lifting the back off a watch mm. <laughs> and looking at every single sound and every instruction and trying to make some wholeness from hearing it in your inner ear. Mm. And uh, by and large, that still holds good. Not for a classical symphony, but, you know, which I can read easily and immediately, mm. but anything that's unfamiliar to me, and certainly uh, a world premiere, you know, and a very new piece. But I think when one should take the business of absorbing a score, uh, take it in a way to appeal to the different parts of your creative personality. There's your heart, there's your intuition, there's your brain power, mm. um, there's your experience you're drawing on. Um, all these things go into how you absorb a new piece. Mm. An example of the sort of variety of study, I mean, it, it's mm. the con contrast between architecture and being forensic. If you take Strauss, for instance, I've conducted a lot of Strauss music, operas and tone poems, but until I did it with the Halle, I'd never done his Macbeth. It's a very, very good piece, mm. but it's not well known because it's not full of gorgeous melodies. How can a piece about Macbeth and his wife and their murderous life be full of gorgeous melodies? <laughs> so it's never going to be as popular, but no. it's very dramatic. And when I started to look at it, I realized that I understood the idiom of the music very well, and I understood how to respond to the details of Strauss's orchestration. But I had to, in order to understand the music, I had to think about his take on Macbeth as a character, and above all, on his wife, and how he changed the music, depending on whether he was dealing with the man or the woman. And that made it, for me, psychologically, such an interesting piece to study and to master. Mm. The play by Shakespeare was a set work of mine at school. And I know the opera by Verdi very well. So this was like another take on Macbeth. And 
I remember the business of the forensic studying being really gripping because you can't afford to say, oh yeah, I see what this is. Mm. You've got to think, what? Why is this like it is? Why is this harmony so ugly? Mm. Why is this so sensuous, this little phrase? And then you have to put it to the orchestra and guide their imaginations to get the right sorts of sound. And I find that really enjoyable and satisfying. So Mark, it's 10 questions time, and I'll start at the very beginning because Julie Andrews tells us it's a very good place to start. What sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? The answer to that is I love being woken up by the birds mm. rather than an alarm clock. <laughs> to come round to a new day with the sound of the dawn chorus is mm. something I treasure. The sound that I can't stand is being on the platform of a station when a high-speed train comes through without stopping. Mm. I hate that. I find it terrifying. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Well, if we assume that the 24 hours has been given me in London, mm. I think I'd have a leisurely breakfast and then with my wife go down to the little shop near Baker Street where I've for 35 years bought all my clothes and have a nice money spending session, <laughs> buying new clothes with her, very important, and then take her out to lunch. A long lingering, liquid, lubricious lunch. Mm -hmm. So much so that then we have to head home for a siesta. <laughs> and I thought then possibly, if it's a free day, I'd be able to go to one of the movies that I never seem to get to. I find it impossible keeping up with all the movies I want to see. And sometimes Band has seen them with her friends and has to come to them again with me. And then it would be time for a drink and a dinner mm. and a quiet evening at home together. That would be a sort of blissful day for me. Doesn't happen very often. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Uh, tell me, has everybody said Kleiber? No, lots of people at the beginning said Kleiber and then he's, he disappeared for about six or seven episodes. Well, let me start with Kleiber. Hmm. I was at many of his first rehearsals when he first came to England. At Covent Garden, he came to do Rosencavalier. Hmm. And of course, his reputation was enormous. And I crept in and was very quiet. It's a piece I know very well. Hmm. And I was fascinated to watch him change the sound of the Covent Garden Orchestra. And what I find now, even after all these years of him not being with us, so inspirational is his freedom. Mm. I always felt, after watching a rehearsal or a performance with Kleiber, I felt inspired to go off and do my thing more than ever. I felt mm. that he'd given me the courage to spread my wings even wider and go further and be braver and bolder. Whereas watching other conductors, for instance, Celebidaki, I felt the opposite. Mm. I always used to feel, I could never do that. I would never live up to it. What he's doing is so controlling um, in his way. Uh, that's right for him, but it couldn't be for me. Mm. And Kleiber was consequently a huge inspiration. But there were some others that were very, very important to me when I was young. Giulini, who's mm. a name that the younger generations now, of course, won't know. Carlo Maria Giulini, 
who came to opera very late because he was a viola player in the Santa Cecilia. But I saw him conduct concerts in London whenever I could possibly be there. And I thought his conducting was very inspirational. Such passion and elegance. Boulez, mm -hmm. as I was just starting to become a conductor myself, he came to London. And then he had this great relationship with the BBC and I met him several times. And he was, again, was a great inspiration. He was the one for us all who heard just as well standing on the podium as he did off it, which for a young conductor is something to admire because we all find, don't we, that when we get up there in front of the orchestra, we don't seem to hear quite as easily as we do when we step off the podium. No, that's true, that is true. It's to do with experience. Um, and of course, Claudio Abbado was somebody I admired without reservation. I just loved his, his ethos, the personality that he gave out, um, his generosity and shy humour and charm. And I thought he was a wonderful conductor. Brilliant. I'm personally very jealous of you sneaking in and watching Clyber rehearse. I'd love to, love to have been there. You know, he, and one of the first rehearsals, just before the strings played a lovely low, quiet, diminished chord, he was, he was, he did the upbeat, and then he stopped and he said, "Only play if you have psychic tendencies." <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> well, moving on from. Conductors of yesteryear, who would be a favourite current conductor? This is very hard, Mike. I know it is. Daniel Harding said it was actually cruel, this question. Well, <laughs> to me it's not cruel, it's just that the ones I've mentioned are all dead. Mm. And I don't think I have a favourite conductor who's alive now. Mm. I have many of my colleagues who I admire mm. uh, in, in different ways. Um, Sir Simon, of course, being one of them. Mm. Um, and, but I wouldn't say that I had a favourite, and mm. I think, I think that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? Well, the hardness of a piece, the difficulty of a piece, Mike, depends on where it falls in your experience. Yes. Might have been hard 25 years ago. Hopefully, would be a little bit easier now. Mm. So. Um, I would say the first, I mean, I can't just give it one answer. No, no. Seems to be three. Um, one of the first pieces I ever conducted in London, in fact, it was my debut at the London Coliseum, was an enormous opera by Henser, which was um, with the libretto by Auden, um, based on Euripides' tragedy, The Bacchae. Mm. And the opera is called The Bassarids, which really means the followers of Dionysus of both sexes. Mm. Bassarids. And this was an opera that Henser had written right at the beginning of the 60s, I think, for the Salzburg Festival. When he was in that time of his life, it was very neo-Straussian, mm. um, when his Germanic background was still very forceful in him. The piece is written for an enormous orchestra, and um, I remember so clearly getting to the podium when I first went on to conduct it was very difficult because the orchestra was squashed in and everybody had to sort of make way to let me through. And I did it without rehearsal uh, because I'd assisted Henser. Henser was conducting it and producing it. And I was lucky uh, for my debut that because he was directing it on stage, 
in the rehearsals uh, for the staging, he couldn't conduct as well. And so I used to conduct all the rehearsals. So the singers knew me. Um, I was very familiar with the ins and outs of the piece. Mm. Uh, and that was a great, great help to me when I suddenly found myself standing in front of this enormous orchestra. And I just remember thinking, I've got to be very calm. I've got to trust that I know what's coming next. I've done all the work. But of course, I hadn't made the sounds. Mm. I hadn't made a gesture that produced the orchestra. And it was, it was very, very daunting and, and terrifying, really, because there was so much about it that was a first for me, conducting in London for the first time, conducting this wonderful company for the first time, conducting this piece for the first time, not letting down the composer who was still there. Mm. And then on top of everything else, the, no the next morning, the whole company closed down. Oh, God. <laughs> this performance came at the end of a, of a bit of very, very painful industrial action. And the unions were, were very strong in those days, the end of the 70s. And uh, things got to such a pass that they, they refused to work. <laughs> and so Lord Howard had to say, right, well, then we won't work to try and call their bluff. Mm. And uh, for me, it was the most extraordinary experience because I was supposed to do two performances, but my second one never happened. Oh dear. <laughs> but of course the joke was, you know, they all said, look at him. You give him a chance, you give him his debut in the middle of London and he closes the company. <laughs> oh dear. That was one of the great challenges of my life. Mm. Um, another one was the first time I conducted a work by Colin Matthews, who's since become a very, very dear friend and somebody who I admire enormously. Um, and it was with the BBC when I was very young. I mean, it was probably the end of the 70s. I can't remember now. I think the piece was called Landscape Three, you know, one of those arty titles. Mm. And I was conducting from a blown up copy of his manuscript, it wasn't printed. And at that time, you know, I just had to get on with it. Uh, and I found that incredibly difficult to do because I was so young, because mm. I was so inexperienced. And Robert Puntamy or whoever it was thought, you know, he'd give me a go. Mm. And this piece by Colin was very, very rhythmically complicated and incredibly acutely marked. And I remember being very, very frightened about it because it was so difficult physically that I couldn't hear it as acutely as I would if I were doing it now. Mm. Um, and that sort of stuck in my memory, you know, as a, as a, a growing experience. Mm. I think then the other piece I would say, also in the concert hall, was one of the first pieces I ever conducted having agreed to be the Halle music director. Mm. It was before my contract started, and it was a, a performance to herald the new century. I think it was very early in January 2000. Mm. And this was a performance that I really, really wished I wasn't doing. <laughs> and I begged to have it cancelled, of Michael Tippett's huge oratorio, The Mask of Time. Now, this piece, I don't know whether you have ever looked at it. No, no, never. Um, no. It's phenomenally complicated. Both to sing, it has very, very difficult chorus parts and very difficult solo parts, and a massive orchestra. Um, and it has some really, really good things in it. I have no ability to judge whether or not, as a whole work, it's wonderful. But when I, I was sort of excited to do it, 
as a way to herald the new century. But then, frankly, when I heard the chorus and how totally stretched they were by it, mm. I thought, what are we doing? <laughs> we, we should be doing something more, more straightforward. I think that was probably the, the hardest occasion I've ever been through. I remember walking on thinking, I have no idea whether or not we're going to get anywhere near this piece. It, you know, it's the sort of music, Mike, that if the, one of the soloists gets the first note wrong, they sing the whole piece wrong. Oh, God. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, because they start too high, and so they sing the whole thing too high. Mm. Or if the chorus get behind the beat, you can't get them back because they're so lacking in confidence, mm. all that sort of thing. The orchestra were terrific. I mean, they really went for it and they were totally capable of doing it marvelously. Yeah. And um, rather wonderfully, the end of the piece is very moving. It's very beautiful. It's very cathartic, inspirational. But God, I, had, I, I reeled out of it thinking, was any of that any good at all? <laughs> When traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? The requisite number of contact lenses. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I think the real answer mm. is to be able to go back to the age of 20 and do my growth and my understanding and achievement as a conductor using my left hand. Mm. beating with my left and being happy about it it's given me certain health issues as they say in america mm. doing it on, with the right hand and i've often wondered whether it would have been different if i led with the left um my friend uh, donald runnicles says that he's never had any problems with conducting left-handed and most orchestras never notice mm. Mm. um it's sort of you know, gave me food for thought. But I wonder, was it when you were first starting, was it similar to my father and my brother were both very left-handed and that they were sort of dissuaded by teachers from writing yeah. left-handed? Was it the same for you when you were conducting? Well, the first um, physical abuse or psychological abuse, I should say, happened my first term, my first year at choir school. So mm. I was eight or nine. And I plucked up the courage at last to write the answer on the board, picked up the chalk, and this woman, whose name was Skinner, <laughs> screamed at me, literally screamed at me to sit down. Wow. She said, sit down, you dreadful child. I will not have left-handed boys in my class. <laughs> it's just crazy, isn't it? Absolutely but crazy. It yeah. Terrible prejudice. And we got through two terms, and she hadn't seen me writing left-handed. It was only because I wanted to write the answer on the board. Mm. But then when I was at uh, Bryanston at my secondary school and I was going to conduct something, the, the brass teacher, who was a little chap called Willby, Will, Willoughby Smith, uh, and he said to me, you know, he, he was a West Country man, he was a sweet man, lovely horn player. <laughs> he said to me, if you want them to follow your beat, I think you better put it in the other hand. <laughs> so I yeah. thought, God, I hadn't thought of that. Of course. Mm. And I didn't question it. and. 25 years later, I thought, well, it's a bit late to change. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I think that the real answer, as opposed to the fantasy, would be being an actor. Mm. Um, I acted a great deal. In fact, I think I was five the first time I did anything 
on stage. And I acted a great deal at school and university. And I adored it. I felt very at ease. And I just wanted to get better at it. I remember that feeling. Mm. I loved the idea of being given a part and eating it up and looking forward to being directed and looking forward to the performance. And I did parts in many different sorts of plays, mm. even a bit of Shakespeare here and there. I did Benedict at school in Much Ado. And of course, I didn't understand half the dirty jokes. <laughs> uh, but it was an amazing experience to you know, spend all that time hearing and thinking and memorizing a Shakespeare play. Mm. And um, we did it in our open air, open air Greek theater at Bryson. And after the first night, a message came back to me in the dressing room that there were two rather lovely schoolgirls who wanted to see me. <laughs> so I thought, oh, well, this is good. Oh, how exciting. <laughs> um, uh, so I finished changing and went and found them. And there they were, terribly shy and terribly gauche, and blow me down. I said, do, do, so did you enjoy it? And they said, oh, yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, it was wonderful. You, you were great. We just wanted to come back and say, I thought, oh, my God, what are they going to say? We think your legs look absolutely marvellous in tights. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? That's a pretty extraordinary question, because if the world was going to end tonight, I don't know that I'd have any appetite. <laughs> but assuming that my wife, faced with the end of the world, would not be prepared to cook, uh, which she does absolutely brilliantly. I'm incredibly lucky. We would probably want to go out, sink all our money, mm. the best Italian meal we could find, somewhere like the Locanda Locatelli down in Portman Square, mm. which I've been to twice. Once we were taken, and the second time we repaid the compliment. And um, I, I, I just uh, simply can't afford it anymore. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But the quality of the food is absolutely extraordinary. And it's very special place, beautifully done. Everything about it's lovely. Italy, you see, is something we haven't got to, Mike, in, in mm -hmm. this chat. But um, Italy is very important to my wife and I. And for the last 30 years, we've been going to Italy every summer um, to the same place uh, we rent. And many of our friends come with us. And of course, we're going to miss it like anything this summer, not being able to get there. And sometimes I wonder whether we'll ever go again. But it's a very, very big part of our life. And our enjoyment of Italian food uh, has no competitor. Much as I you know, love being in France and eating in the French way, I just long to get back to Italy with the incredibly firm, uh, bold, iconic ingredients of the natural produce. Um, and the wine, of course, too. Mm and um i collected i've got a, uh, quite a bit in the cellar downstairs waiting for it to get ready to be drunk and um that all gives me great pleasure so it would have to be an italian restaurant but the very very top end well as a fellow you can't see me i'm nodding away uh, in agreement to you because somebody who's also been to italy for the last six or seven years on holiday and again pretty much the same place I love the food and I think it's a wonderful choice. And it's been a wonderful chat, Mark. I've really, really enjoyed it. I'd like to thank you and I hope to see you very soon.
Right, Mike, and thank you. Thank you for thinking of including me in this lovely series. And I hope that you're pleased with the results. If you're not, then we may have to repeat it. <laughs> I'm sure, well, I don't mind chatting to you. I'm sure we could fill another whole podcast with another hour with all different subjects. But thank you. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, we travel the 33 miles down the M62 from the Halle in Manchester to Liverpool to meet a conductor who is just coming to the end of a highly successful 15 years with the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra and about to start with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra in London. Until then, bye bye. <laughs>